Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 19th, 2006, and I'm Dr. Richard Savell. This is going to be another podcast from a future speaker at the 36th Critical Care Congress in Orlando, Florida, February 17th through the 21st, 2007. Today we have our own Dr. Yitzhak Kupfer with us to speak about uh, prevention of medication errors in the intensive care unit, and he is an associate professor of medicine at the State University of New York Downstate Medical Center uh, School of Medicine, and he is the director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit here at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you so much, Dr. Kupfer, for joining well, thank us today. You. Um, why don't you start out by telling us a little bit of uh, some background as to perhaps how you got interested in this particular area and uh, some of the things maybe that people might learn uh, if they go to your talk. Well, we know that over the last few years there's been an increasing amount of uh, interest in reducing medication errors, as well as improving standards of care, of quality of care throughout, throughout the system, not just in intensive care, but throughout what, what we do as physicians. And my interest really was piqued by the fact that if we look at the critically ill patient, to, to my mind, this is a patient that's a setup waiting for a disaster to happen. They have multiple pre-existing morbidities. Right. They have a tremendous amount of ongoing orders. There's a tremendous amount of data to be synthesized. And it seemed to me that when we try to integrate the tremendous amount of laboratory, radiograph, radiological and and physical order physical activities that we do at the bedside and integrate it into a coherent plan uh, with the amount of variability that exists uh, from patient to patient from practitioner to practitioner nurse to nurse that we were just asking for a disaster to happen well these patients that so and just to reiterate because that's that's the the crux so they come in with multiple medical problems almost always significant polypharmacy and almost all of the medicines, as we're always discussing with the residents, need to be addressed, and many of them get changed, both when they come into the unit and when they leave the unit, multiple opportunities for error, right? Absolutely. And I think one of the important things that, as a community that we've been focusing on for, the, for at least the last three years is the concept of, this, of medical reconciliation. Now, medical re reconciliation is not anything new. We always 
reconciled medications, but we didn't do it in a formal, systematic way. And one of the things that we have really focused in on is, and in Maimonides we have now instituted a new form, is a medical reconciliation where we obtain all the medications that the patient is on at baseline, and in a formal way, evaluate why the patient is on this medication, is it appropriate for them to be on the medication now, and is it something that is some that they will need to be on in the short-term future or long-term future, or is it a medication that is no longer going to be relevant for them? This is not just for patients who are getting admitted from the floor, from, from, from home to the intensive care unit. This is for any patient that's admitted to the hospital, and in truth, any patient that is transferred from one venue of the hospital to another area of the hospital. What may have been appropriate immediately post-op uh, an acute surgical procedure may not be appropriate two weeks down the line after a whole host of things have occurred. So medical reconciliation is not a one-time process, in my opinion. It's a daily integration of what is going on with the patient now and where do you expect the patient to be, and how do I assure that the patient transitions from here to there in a safe fashion? Well, um, you know, we were discussing this before, and there's many, many uh, topics to discuss, and and I thought, uh, you know, one of the big ones, and then we'll get into some of the important ones later, is in terms of medication errors, is even the organ dysfunction of the patient. So what may have been the right order for the patient yesterday may not be correct today. if you wanted to comment on Absolutely. That. I think you hit it right on the head. Let me give you a very simple example that I use uh, frequently just to illustrate this exact point that you made. We have patients that come in with congestive, uh, with history of congestive heart failure, and they're appropriately being treated with beta blockers and ACE inhibitors, which have clearly been important in improving the quality of life in patients with CHF as well as improving their survival. But they come to the intensive care unit with an episode of severe sepsis and a frank shock. This patient should not be receiving their beta blockers right now. They should not be receiving their ACE inhibitor right now. But they will probably need to be back on these medications once we address the acute decompensation and stabilize them. And this is the type of process that that really illustrates the dynamic changes and the dynamic interplay of the ICU patient. There's no doubt that a patient with CHF is going to need to be on these very, very important medications but not right now when they, de- when they decompensate in the unit. So, our, so we need to focus in twofold. We need to focus in what do they need now, and we need to remember what their baseline needs are and safely restart these medications at the earliest possible time, but not too early, and certainly we don't want them to fall through the cracks. Well, uh, you know, I just wanted to follow up on that because I just uh, I, I must spend at least 40% of my time doing exactly what you described where you've taken a drug and it's not there's a difference between a patient not being on a drug by accident and a patient not being on a drug on purpose, but that having that drug in limbo so that when it's time to restart it, it gets restarted. And that's a very difficult thing to implement. For example, um, even in the ICU I'm working in, the same intensivist isn't taking care of the patient 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and that information needs to be passed along, correct? Correct. And this is where we talk about how you devise a system whereby the standard of care is not just implemented at time zero, but is carried through from one practitioner to the next. 
If you have a standard medical reconciliation form, that does help you because you can go back and always look at the initial form and go back and, and make sure that you're constantly seeing what they were on, what they need to be on, where your goal is going to end up being. But when we, when we have one shift going off and we have another shift coming on, we have to hand off our patients to each other. And this handoff process is a very, very dangerous time. Things are overlooked, and you need to do it in a formal way, not just, well, the patient in bed what has you know, this problem and the patient in bed too has that problem, and uh, you, know, just, uh, uh, you have to sit down, you have to go through the issues, you have to address the ongoing problems and the chronic problems, where you want to go tonight, what you're planning on doing tomorrow, this takes a little bit more time in this, you know, during that transition, but that time is very well spent. And I think doing it in a formal way is better than doing it just in the, in the hallway, quickly saying, bed one, bed two, bed three. And to that end, we actually have instituted a multidisciplinary rounding process, primarily with physicians and the critical care nurses. When we can, we have our pharmacy representatives as well twice a day with each shift. At the beginning of the shift, the morning shift and the, after, and the evening shift, we're on 12-hour shifts, so it makes it a little bit easier. We only have to do it twice a day. And this allows the whole team, not just the nurses, not just the physicians, but the team together to discuss and to be fully cognizant of what the current problems are, what the issues that we are, are likely to face the, the patient over the next few hours, and where we ultimately want that patient to go and what needs to be done to get the patient there. I know that the, uh, I was going to ask you to discuss uh, about this concept of the multidisciplinary team, and you've kind of addressed that. But I think along those lines, uh, and this may sound a little silly, but one member of the multidisciplinary team in a lot of hospitals now is the computer. <laughs> And the question is this, uh, you know, I've had a longstanding interest in computers, uh, specifically in the ICU, and they can often be a double-edged sword. And uh, there are areas where they would be sort of theoretically of benefit, but they can induce other problems, uh, process issues. And maybe we could spend a few minutes discussing some of your experiences. Well, I can't agree with you more about that, Rich. You know, the computer is a double-edged sword. If you use them properly, they make your life and the, and the patient and your life as a practitioner smoother and they improve patient care. But they require a significant amount of preloading, if you will. You can't just expect a computer system to change how you approach the patient. They can help you if to standardize your care. They can be used to help assure that, for example, your patient is getting VTE prophylaxis, your, your patient is, is getting medications to pre- prevent stress ulcers and GI bleeding, because you can set up computerized order entry sets that help prompt you. Not that I'm, I'm suggesting that every patient be protocolized in a cookbook fashion, but I am suggesting that, I agree, the computer can be used to help you in 
standardizing the care in, in, to the extent that, that care can be standardized. Well, and again, if it's if it's programmed properly, obviously to prevent conflicts, if the patient's already on one ACE inhibitor and uh, a doctor in training may not understand and put them on a second ACE inhibitor. Um, but again, and that was going to lead into another topic I was going to discuss with you, uh, and I really think it can't be overemphasized, is from a patient safety standpoint, this topic of, of protocols and integrating them into the computer, I think, is, is worthy of discussion. Right. A further discussion. Protocols have gotten a bad name for reasons which I'm not really fully comfortable with. I think physicians are afraid of protocols because we see the protocol as a way of reducing our input and reducing our authority and, uh, and our leadership role. But that's a very short-sighted uh, and really unfounded fear. A good protocol is designed to extract from the literature what is most relevant for your particular patient population and then computerize that in a way that will be an educational tool, not just for yourself because sometimes we're very, very busy and it's very easy to overlook something when we're trying to order 25 uh, orders at once. It prompts you. Besides prompting the physician, it prompts the nurses to say, doctor, perhaps you uh, would like to order VTE prophylaxis for your patient. Not in a way that undermines my authority or my leadership role, but our common goal is patient care. And if anything that we can do that will help achieve that goal is something that we as physicians, as the leaders of healthcare, need to adopt. Um, we were discussing before you and I this concept, and I know Peter Pronovost talks about this frequently and the constant comparisons to the airline industry of creating a culture of patient safety. And again, as you were describing to me before, if a particular clinician makes an error, the idea is how can we fix the system so errors like this don't happen? And if you'd like to comment uh, on that, that'd be great. Well, fixing the system is really a difficult thing to do. It's probably a lot more difficult to fix any system or to change a culture than it is to give a lecture and to educate f f practitioners of the value of beta blockers or ACE inhibitors in congestive heart failure. If we look at the ICU as a very complex system, I, I, and, and we use the airline industry as a comparison, airlines are much less complex than human beings. You can more easily adapt a standardized approach to flying an airplane than you can to, to treating even a relatively simple patient with pulmonary edema who's intubated. And when we design a system as, uh, of care for these complex individuals, we are also dealing with the practitioners who have their own fears about loss of control, who have their own fears about whether th their input is going to be the dominant input or some other practitioner such as the intensivist. I firmly believe that a, critical, that a closed critical care unit is the way to go if at all possible. Yes, we don't have enough intensivists to close units nationally and internationally, but by putting the care, at least the administrative care, of a unit 
under the direction of a intensivist, we are sure that to some degree there's going to be a standardization so that if we're going to give a beta blocker, we're not going to be giving all 30 different types of beta blockers that may be available on the market, and there are differences among beta blockers as a class. We're going to be giving one or two beta blockers. That allows us to standardize the doses. It allows us to standardize the expected complications because we know with this particular drug, these are the things that we need to focus in on. With other drugs within the same category of a class, there are subtle differences. And the more you allow for variability, the greater the, um, the potential drug-drug interactions, the greater for subtle negative adverse events that you may not be able to appreciate until the, the, at the early signs, and you, but if you had something that you were very, very familiar with, the first sign of decompensation or the first, si the first hint that there's an adverse event would be very apparent to you. So I, 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 that's something that I think as a community we're going to have to work on, but it's going to be very, very difficult to achieve. Do you have a, a sense uh, in preparing for this or in your own experience, sort of the top two or three kinds of errors that you see working in the intensive care unit um, and sort of ways that you've learned over the years to try and decrease the frequency of those errors? That's a very, very interesting question. To me, the greatest potential source of error is, again, the complexity of the system in the ICU. Now, I, I practice in a teaching institution where we're fortunate to have really excellent residents. And you have fellows as well, right? And I have fellows as well. Right. However, the most brilliant resident is still limited by in terms of their clinical experience. And there is this tension of, how, of patient care and safety versus the, our educational mission. We would like to be able to devolve a greater sense of responsibility to our house staff. At the, on the other hand, we recognize that the more we allow house staff to do, the more potential that their lack of clinical experience will trans translate into a misjudgment. So again, allowing residents to get the education they need without jeopardizing patient safety. Absolutely. Absolutely critical. Absolutely right? critical. What we have decided to do is we, while we fully integrate our house staff, including our fellows, during the multidisciplinary rounding, they are there. They're expected to initiate plans of management, recommend workups. There still is a very firm leadership structure so that everything before it's done is vetted and approved by a supervising intensivist. We're very fortunate that we are able to have enough intensivists to fully staff our unit 24-7. This is a problem I think that, that, that we face as a community is that there, are, that there still is a significant lack of intensivists to be able to achieve that. In a s smaller community hospital that does not have house staff, this particular problem doesn't exist, but then we face the problem where there are many hours of a day where, there is, where the unit is relatively understaffed in terms of physicians. So the nurse can certainly quickly call a physician, 
But it's not the same, and no, no matter how good the nurse is, it's not the same getting the picture because you, you're there, you see the patient, you're, you're able to integrate the whole gestalt, and, and, certain, and some things you can't objectively describe, you can't objectively measure. I mean, we all have experiences of walking into a room, taking a look at a patient and saying, this patient is going to crash. I don't know why. I can't tell you exactly why I'm saying it, but we know it. So let's quickly jump on this patient. You can't do that over the telephone. Do you, um, did you want to comment on the role of the pharmacist, both in general and in your specific unit, how uh, the pharmacist is integrated? Well, we're truly blessed by having a devoted farm, critical care farm, pharmacist, a PharmD, that rounds with us and at the time is a major participant in the discussion about medications. I, I, can't, I, I wouldn't even be able to estimate the amount of times there her intervention was crucial in preventing drug-drug interactions, providing education to the house staff about how to dose medications, both in terms of the general dosing schedules of certain medications, how m- different organ systems affect medications, how we need to measure drug levels and how drug levels can be affected by things such as albumin, which you know, many house staff and are, are not cognizant of. Optimizing uh, antibiotic dosing. Uh, optimizing antibiotic dosing, trying to use one's daily aminoglycoside dosing as opposed to more traditional dosing. These are things that the, pharm- the pharmacists are invaluable and integrating them during our, our round so that they not, they're not there just to react to an order, but they participate in the creation of the order makes a significant difference. And I know in some other settings, the um, the pharmacist can often be involved to help with antibiotic de-escalation. If, they, if they're looking at the culture results as well, they can help uh, help shut off antibiotics if they're not needed at all. Absolutely. I think the key is creating a culture where all of the practitioners, physicians, nurses, pharmacists, occupational therapists, nutritionists, all recognize we're working towards one goal. That goal is get the patient well, get him out of the hospital as rapidly as we can, not in an inappropriate way, but working together. And when we empower all of the ancillary services that traditionally were kind of thought of as secondary, when we empower them to feel that they are just as equal to ourselves. Right, then everybody's in, invested in getting Everybody's it right. invested in everybody's, invested. everybody's patient. I think that dramatically improves patient care. We've been speaking today with Dr. Yitzhak Kupfer. He's the director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit here at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. And he will be speaking at the upcoming 36th Critical Care Congress in Orlando, Florida on decreasing medication error in the intensive care unit. Thanks so much, Yitzhak, for joining me today. Thank you. This concludes our podcast for Thursday, October 19th, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners. Please check out the SCCM website at www.sccm.org. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell.
Register now for the Society's 36th Critical Care Congress to be held in Orlando, Florida, USA, February 17th through the 21st, 2007. Connect with your colleagues and gain a multi-professional perspective on clinical topics relevant to your daily ICU environment by attending the various cutting-edge sessions, hands-on workshops, informative symposia, and exciting social engagements. Don't miss the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year. Register today by speaking with an SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or by visiting www.sccm.org.